Tonight, a grim statistic. One American is dying from a drug overdose every five minutes, according to the Office of National Drug Control Policy. The CDC estimates more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses over a 12-month period ending this April, a record. That's nearly three times the number of deaths from traffic accidents last year, and more than twice the number of gun deaths. Welcome, this is the Dr. Junkie Show. I'm Ben Boyce, and today's episode is about the Portugal model. Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001 to some degree, and since then, they've seen a 75% reduction in drug users, as well as all sorts of other benefits like less overdose and disease, and less needles discarded in public places. They haven't made drugs straight up legal, but they have made it almost impossible to wind up in jail for using drugs, as long as they can't accuse you of selling them. Portugal is often pointed to as a pattern for the U.S. to follow, and they've managed to save a lot of lives that might otherwise have been lost to addiction. But here's the thing. I don't think the Portugal model is the right answer. And despite how often it's thrown out there as a solution to the U.S. drug problem, I don't really think most other activists see Portugal's solution as our solution either. So today's episode is a rundown of Portugal's current method for handling drug users and dealers, along with my thoughts on why it isn't quite the right way to go, although it's leaps and bounds better than the current U.S. federal policy. It's probably a middle step between where we are and where we really want to be, between our current 100,000 overdose deaths every year and a more reasonable number like none, or hardly any. We should start at the beginning, or at least a beginning. This was May Day in Lisbon, one week after the regime of Marcelo Caetano was destroyed in a military coup. An infectiously happy people celebrated the restoration of freedoms taken from them almost 50 years ago. 200,000 people took to the streets, strewing red carnations and dancing with the troops. A blaring chorus of car horns clashed with the chant a united people will never be defeated. In 1974, Portugal's dictatorship, established by Antonio Salazar in 1932, was taken down in a coup. The change in government ushered in democracy, and it's remembered as the Carnation Revolution because it was mostly peaceful and it involved protests of a sort where carnations were placed in the barrels of soldiers' guns as a sign of peace. A new government took control. And with it came a new style of life, a cultural shift for those living in Portugal. Prior to 1974, Portugal was a super conservative country. And I mean super conservative. You couldn't buy Coca-Cola, and you had to have a license to own a cigarette lighter. There was very little contact with the outside world. But after democracy was unleashed, the rest of the world came rushing in. Not slowly like might happen when a country begins industrializing or signs a treaty, but all at once, like happens when a coup overthrows a dictator and replaces them with a democratic system of governance. And let's just say the citizens weren't exactly prepared for the world that came rushing in. Music, television, trinkets, electronics, foods, and, possibly most devastating, drugs. Change happened fast, and with that change came stress overwhelming feelings of anxiety typical to that sort of upheaval. It's the same sort of stress that shows up when we go to jail, or when we're fired from our job, or when a new bill shows up that we don't know how to pay. 
It's normal to feel overwhelmed when things change rapidly around you, and Portugal was changing fast. So the drugs that showed up along with everything else were, to many, a welcome relief. You see, no one in Portugal grew up watching anti-drug PSAs or Hollywood cautionary tales on after-school specials, so they weren't super scared of drugs like we tend to be in the United States. They were completely ignorant, not misinformed like us. Where we might not know much about drugs except the fact that we think they're dangerous, the Portuguese didn't know anything about drugs except the fact that they made them feel better about life. Before the country could get ahead of the crisis, a large group of people had become addicted. And then things got really bad. There's a long cross-cultural history of changes that caused groups in the citizenry to start using drugs in problematic ways. And these addiction epidemics tend to follow the same recipe of cultural upheaval resulting in overmedication. In the mid-1800s, 1832 to be exact, the opium wars kicked off when China began to notice a huge opium addiction issue in its citizens. And since opium was illegal in China, they went looking for where it was slipping in. It was slipping in from India, but actually from Great Britain who had snagged a small piece of land from India and started to grow opium, which they would sell to hustlers headed into China, who would, in turn, make a fortune off addicted Chinese opium eaters and smokers. Prior to that, China, like Portugal, had managed to enforce a pretty sheltered life on its citizens. There were only a couple ports where Chinese people were even allowed to trade with the outside world. And because of that cultural separation, there was a lot of cultural ignorance. Like the Portuguese 200 years later, the Chinese were both overwhelmed and uninformed. They too lacked all of the fear-mongering anti-drug propaganda we now have in the United States. In fact, back then, we didn't have much of it either. But since drugs were cheap, legal, and pure in the United States, we could talk to our pharmacists, doctors, and friends about them. And they were studied by researchers who were looking for the truth. But safe, affordable supply and legitimate information about pharmacology were hard to come by in both China and Portugal, creating the perfect storm for a massive opium epidemic. The drugs didn't cause the problems. The drugs had been around for more than 6,000 years already. The government caused the problems, then blamed it on the drug users. The tension of rapid social change caused people in both cultures to turn to drugs. In a lack of safe supply, plus constantly inflated prices, caused them to experience all the issues that come along with addiction and cultures of prohibition. By the 1990s, Portugal had a huge drug problem. It's estimated that a full 1% of people living in Portugal were addicted to heroin at that time, and up to 10% of the population was using it. And since there was little drug education or medication-assisted therapy, when the police did get involved, users simply went to jail. It wasn't helping anyone, so politicians came up with a Hail Mary plan. They would decriminalize drugs and make sure that users didn't go to jail anymore. They couldn't have legalized drugs outright even if they wanted to. You can thank the United States for that. But they could tinker with the penalties, and so that's what they did. In 2001, Portugal's new laws went into effect. They aimed to allow people to have a 10-day or less supply of any drug without danger of being arrested. The numbers are a little wonky here. For heroin, it's 1 gram. For cocaine, it's 2 grams. 
and for weed it's 25 grams. But regardless, the point of the law was and is to separate users from dealers and to punish the latter while treating the former. As many of you have heard me say repeatedly on this podcast, this is not a great quick fix solution because in any culture of prohibition, all drug users are drug dealers. But it was a way to get politicians to compromise. Even the anti-drug people were on board at the time, despite the fact that many of them weren't exactly convinced it would work. They figured, what do we have to lose? It couldn't get any worse than it was, so why not give the long shot a try? Spoiler alert, it did work. In 2015, Portugal had the lowest drug overdose death rate in Europe, 10 times lower than the UK and 50 times lower than the United States. The number of people actively addicted to heroin has decreased by 75%, from more than 100,000 to less than 25,000. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's how it works in Portugal now. If you find yourself face-to-face with the police and you have, say, an ounce of weed, you go to jail. If you have an eight ball of crack, you go to jail. If you have a pocket full of illegal pills or a teener of heroin, you go to jail. Your life will be disrupted, your name will be marked up with a permanent record, and you will begin a long journey through the machine of justice. I'll come back to this issue, which is the reason I don't agree with Portugal's drug policy, but it's worth pointing out that arresting anyone with more than a small amount of drugs and charging them with a crime makes sure police departments will continue to expend a lot of effort and money on arresting a lot of people who are just trying to pay for their own supply. All drug users are drug dealers. And in the United States, police get to keep the money that alleged drug dealers have, even if those people are never charged with an actual crime. All we've done to make it look like we fixed things is to allow the police to release those drug users who are poor enough that they don't have much dope or cash. You know, the people the system couldn't squeeze any money out of anyway. But we still arrest and charge anyone who can afford a sizable stash. And what do you know? Those also happen to be the same people who can more often pay big fines to the court or write a check to the rehab. The Portugal model hasn't addressed this problem. And until it is addressed, we won't ever see true success in drug policy reform. But like I said, Portugal is much better than the United States at dealing with its poor drug users. Here's what happens if you're arrested with less than the maximum personal use amount in Portugal. If your dope is verified as less than arrestable quantity, it's taken and destroyed, and you're given a summons to show up not at court, but at a dissuasion committee, a three-person board, none of whom is a judge, a cop, or a prosecutor, whose job it is to decide what you need. If they assess you and decide you aren't struggling with addiction, they might just cut you loose, and all you're out is your time. If they think you are struggling, they can send your ass to treatments of all sorts, the most common form being a requirement to report to a probation officer and to meet with a methadone van every morning. And of course, if you just say fuck it and blow them off, eventually the only thing they can do is have you arrested. So the entire system is not quite as watertight as they would have us believe. I'll come back to that methadone van in just a minute. I love it, by the way. The problem with these programs of so-called dissuasion, as in talking you out of using by leaning on logic and knowledge, dissuasion, it doesn't really make sense because many drug users don't want to stop. 
And it doesn't help anything to force us into treatments we don't want and aren't ready for. And ultimately, if you just blow off all the summons and refuse to participate in the methadone treatment, it's a bit sketchy whether you end up with an arrest warrant and what prosecution might even look like. All that gray area is scary. It's where people get treated in all sorts of ways that make us all angry later on when we find out. Okay, back to the methadone vans. It's 6 a.m. and a line of people is huddled around a curb. There isn't a bus stop or a mailbox there. It's the place where they know the methadone bus pulls up every morning at 6.15 on the dock. Many of them are court-ordered to be here. Many are not. The key to these programs is it's really not that difficult to get in. If you show up at the van and you don't have a prescription on record, the methadone dispenser can usually point you to a nearby clinic where a doctor can write you a script and then you can come back. Or you can catch the next bus. They run all day. Now, I've extolled methadone a lot on this podcast. It's a heavy opioid that stays in your system for a long time, like 72 hours long, and its half-life is almost an entire day. So it allows users of other opioids, like heroin, with a half-life of less than an hour, or like fentanyl, with a half-life a third of that. It allows us to get ourselves out of the repetitive, non-stop loops that wind up taking up entire days and instead just dose once and still get the same medicinal benefits, albeit not to the extreme levels we enjoy with heroin or fentanyl. The point of methadone and suboxone, a similar drug also used in treatment, is avoiding detox, but it also provides a lot of opioid-like medicinal qualities, and a lot of us use it indefinitely. So these vans drive around usually early in the morning because that's when we methadone users love getting our drugs, at the crack of dawn, and they dose people who would otherwise spend their days seeking out and using street drugs. Instead, at 7 a.m., they're well, and that's it. They aren't well for an hour, or well for 30 minutes. They're well until tomorrow, and they know the van will be back then, so they can get on with their lives. For some of us, that's jobs and careers. For others, it's school and degrees. And for many, it's family and friends. But the point is, none of that shit is possible when we're preoccupied with staying well. So methadone bans and similar methods for making it easy on drug users to make responsible choices are vital to the success of addicted people. The United States should pick this up in far more places than we already do. U.S. has been on a slow but steady incline when it comes to overdose deaths for the past six years, and it seems the pandemic has made things even worse. For the first time ever, more than 100,000 deadly overdoses were recorded in the U.S. over a 12-month period. The U.S. reporting more than 100,000 overdose deaths from April of last year to April of 2021. Opioids account for nearly two-thirds of all overdose deaths in that 12-month period, and fentanyl was a driving factor. The United States has a problem that seems pretty familiar in light of what Portugal went through in the 70s and 80s, and what China went through in the 1800s. We've recently been through a big upheaval, and things changed fast. Technology exploded and gave us new ways to communicate, ways we weren't prepared for, and the outside world came flooding in, to our living rooms, to our offices, to our smartphones. Technology also changed what work looks like a change accelerated by COVID-19. And our politicians provided all sorts of opportunities for us to drive that anxiety we were all feeling to even higher levels. 
When Obama was elected in 2008, lots of people like me, white guys, thought, finally, racism is over. We can get on with the post-race, I-don't-see-skin-color world that we all want to live in. This, as effigies were hung from nooses outside the White House on the day of his inauguration, and the KKK saw a surge in popularity for the first time in decades. Most liberals largely ignored all that. We were too drunk on victory, on having been lucky enough to live through the era of the first black president. We did that. Those few assholes who didn't get it could go to hell. That's what we thought. But there were a lot of people who felt the same way as the effigy-hanging KKK-joining Americans. And by the time Trump showed up, it was less surprising than we all pretended that he won. As much as people who support him would say that he won despite Pussygate in the racist comments about Mexicans being rapists and drug dealers, in the refusal to show his tax returns, in the name-calling, non-stop lying, and odd behavior, he won because of those things. This country has a large group of mostly white, mostly middle to upper class people who were tired of hearing their kids tell them that they were racist or sexist. And when Obama took office, those parents sighed in relief, thinking their kids would be forced to lay off. After all, we had a black president. The Thanksgiving dinner being ruined because Granny said something racist was a thing of the past, right? Well, no. It turns out that Obama actually opened the space for all sorts of long-overdue dialogue that those same people were not willing to have. And now they were angry that instead of race going away, it seemed to have taken center stage with the election of Obama. Trump was just the natural result of those people seeing something that made them feel back in control. This guy could just say fuck you to anybody who told him he was racist. Or he could just call somebody a name if they didn't respect him the way he wanted. It was exactly what a lot of folks in this country were looking for. And so he won. He might win again in 2024, given just how little has been done to fix those resentments which led to his election the first time. And even if he doesn't win, the movement he started is something that appears to now have a life of its own. So when the 100,000 death toll showed up, many of us weren't surprised. This is a time when people are being forced to deal with uncomfortable things they haven't wanted to deal with. And now, many of our support groups have been destroyed over petty bickering. So when we used to call so-and-so on a bad day, they might not be speaking to us. It's a perfect storm for the overdose crisis that ensued. And yet we're dealing with it the worst way possible. We're locking people up, pushing them out, and making it incredibly difficult to safely get their drugs. Back to Portugal's plan, now 30 years into its enactment. It was a great start, but they didn't follow through. The plan was only halfway there. If you get arrested in Portugal and you have an eight ball of cocaine in your pocket, you go to jail. A bundle of packs, you're going to jail. If you're arrested with what is clearly less than a gram, things get a little bit different. But as someone who's been through the court system, it's not as different as we might think. The summons dates and probation requirements, like drug court, can often turn from a blessing to a curse. Some of us don't want to stop using drugs, nor live traditional lifestyles. So what? The obvious problem again and again is supply. And as long as there is no legal safe supply, people will supply in any way, unsafely and illegally. 
Cocaine and heroin, by weight, are more valuable than gold on the streets of the United States. And so long as people have hungry kids or rent due, we can't expect them to say no to obvious solutions to their problems, like selling drugs. And so, we'll continue to employ police officers to arrest them, or to investigate the crimes they commit, because you can't call the cops if someone robs you as a drug dealer. You have to handle it yourself. If you wanted to make the police force as large as possible, you would do something like this. Build a system that ensured violent crime would occur forever, so that you can investigate and prosecute it forever. Then start weeding out those detainees who can't cough up enough cash to keep the system well-oiled. Call it compassion and stop arresting only those who don't have enough cash to help fund the department. Talk about job security. You know, the farther down this rabbit hole of research I go regarding drugs and the war against users, the more it becomes obvious that we built the system to self-sustain in clever ways that hide its tracks. It isn't just the tricky move to stop arresting people who can't pay huge fines and call that sympathy. It's all of it. We punish people for addiction even though we know that increases their likelihood of relapse. We make sure drugs are inconsistent, strong today and weak tomorrow, forcing our tolerance as users through the roof. We've demanded drug users hide their addictions, causing us to lie about our use to avoid shame and, often, to die alone when we might have been rescued if we were with others. We've trained one another to turn on our family members and friends when they use. We call it tough love. And we've even gotten the police on board, looking to arrest them for existing. We're willing to cough up $50,000 a year to imprison someone for crumbs of cocaine. But we aren't willing to cough up a few thousand dollars to pay for treatment, housing, or medical attention unless they break the law. We couldn't design a system better suited to keep itself grinding away and permanently expanding if we tried. David Posey's, author of The Weight of Air, passed away last week. And if you haven't noticed already in this episode, I'm angry. I'm angry that we're this far into a war that should have never started, and that we're blowing through 100,000 deaths every year like it's no big deal. If we aren't at the point Portugal was in in the early 2000s, when will we be? At what point do we say, fuck it, what do we have to lose? Let's try this other way. I know, I know. What about the police officers, prison guards, rehab employees, and parole officers who will lose their jobs? Not to mention the food service workers, jail clothing manufacturers, maintenance workers. The list goes on and on. But we don't actually say that out loud. And that's part of our problem. It's the only reason the war on drugs wages on. So this episode is dedicated to David Posey's. Thanks for your work and your willingness to tell us your story. We miss you, man. I feel like our system is built on an idea that you shouldn't put any drugs, anything foreign, unless it's like an antidepressant or, you know, blood thinner or whatever. You shouldn't put any of this stuff in your body. And there's nobody in their right mind is going to argue that it's better for you to take illicit fentanyl than buprenorphine. And yet, you know, if you felt like you were about to relapse, and you couldn't find a buprenorphine doctor, and I gave you an 8 milligram strip of buprenorphine, I'm committing a crime, you're committing a crime, we're both going in jail, however, I've saved you from using fentanyl and possibly dying, yeah. and perhaps I've turned you on to, uh, you know, a good path to recovery that's going to save your life, and yet we're both in jail. I live at the end of the book also. also, also.